This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Last week, Governor Dan Malloy talked about the state of the state budget with students at High School, Inc. in Hartford. We've chosen to provide a lot of services that other states don't. What's interesting about people in Connecticut is they don't want to pay taxes to do that, but they also don't want to cut the services, um, which means that really what they want is a magician, not a governor. (laughs) So without any ado, I present Malloy the Magnificent. For his first trick, he's got Republicans and Democrats at the state capitol actually talking about how to solve the budget shortfall. This is because an earlier trick didn't work. This is the one that tries to make this talk show host believe a deficit doesn't really exist at all. I almost fell for it. Like any great magic trick, there's a lot of sleight of hand. For instance, how big is this deficit anyway? Republicans seem to think it's about twice as big as Democrats. We'll talk about this magic show on The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We'll also find out how Malloy will escape the straitjacket he's in as he dangles over a tank filled with elections enforcement officials and campaign mailers. The trick there, well, Democrats who run the state are in a legal battle with the state. How will he plan escape? Later, we will meet another magician, Ganem the Great. He plots a reappearance in the mayor's office in Bridgeport. Join our conversation here on Where We Live, 860-275-7266. Joining us, as always, is Colin McEnroe the Great. He's the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Hi, Colin. Good morning, Mr. Dankowski. Mark Pazniokas is here, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Hello once again, Paz. I am in awe of that opening. <laughs> That's mostly Kion Wolf. Uh, Daniela Altamari, Statehouse reporter for the Hartford Current, joins us as well. Hello, Daniela. Hi. So, okay, l- l- let me go to our Capital Insiders first here and talk about these budget talks at the state capitol. And we joke around a little bit about this, but at the end of the day, Paz, it is interesting that legislative leaders are meeting, again, on both sides of the aisle to try to uh, figure out what's happening with the state budget. Obviously, we are in some sort of deficit. There's a little bit of a, a, a disclarity about what that uh, what that deficit is. What are they talking about up there? Football mainly. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, these talks are a confluence of, I think, some substantive discussions on the budget. Um, but just as importantly to the governor and the legislature, um, trying to get the high ground on the messaging. Um, governor Malloy clearly had lost the political narrative, uh, I think, in, the, in, this, in this, the first year of his second term. Uh, we certainly saw a poll that reinforced that sense. And, and he's been getting hammered. Uh, unlike in 2011, the first year of his first term, this year, he, has not, he did not make any effort to really sell the budget. He did not make any effort to educate Connecticut voters about these are the challenges. This is my approach. This time, uh, we just kind of slid into uh, a compromise budget at the end of the year, you know, when Brendan Sharkey, the speaker, was able to round up enough votes at about four in the morning and, and they, they, they banged it home. So that's really what, you're, what you have going on here. You have – you have the politics and you have the finances. Um, you have people at the table who have uh, op- oppositional goals. You know, you have the Democratic leaders of the legislature who have a sharp eye on 2016. You have Republicans across the table who are trying to figure out how they can get their jobs in 2016. So it, it you know, it's not your typical discussion about how do we come up with the best budget. Okay, but we never really seem to have a conversation where we try to come up with the best budget, Daniela. I mean, it's always at the end of the session and we're always making a lot of compromises. Here, at least it seems as though Democrats and Republicans are talking about this because 
because something Republicans have been saying for a long time is they don't even want us to be part of these discussions. So at least that's changed. Yeah. And I think Paz makes an interesting point. I mean, I remember the, you know, the budget tours and he was going around talking to people of Connecticut, you know, and having these sort of town hall style meetings all over the state. And we didn't see any of that this time around. Um, you know, it's a it's a definitely a different approach. And, and you're right. It's playing out in his poll numbers. I mean, um, you know, the Democrats aren't happy with him either. So I think there's that as well uh, that's, you know, sort of um, maybe forced his hand a little bit. Well, the Democrats aren't happy with some of the rescissions that happened yeah. uh, just a, a month or so ago. I guess it was just a month ago, Paz. You know, first we, we have the budget passed and then all of a sudden there's a hole in the budget and the rescissions start. And so labor unions are upset and teachers are upset and people oh. from higher education are upset and everyone's upset about this. It gets to the, the cut that we played at the beginning. Governor Malloy is saying, look, everyone wants no cuts and everyone wants a balanced budget. What am I supposed to do here? There are some years you can make cuts that are really more accounting maneuvers. You defer certain things. We're at the point now where most of the cuts that are being discussed, uh, it's real money taken out of the pockets of real programs and real people. That's very painful. Nobody likes to do that, not even Republicans. And that, you know, so so how will that play out now? You know, Len Fisano and Themis Claritis, the two Republican leaders, uh, They've put themselves in a bit of a box because they have denounced most of these cuts. And the question is, what will they accept? You know, nobody is talking about raising taxes, certainly not this year, not after a a big tax increase that was adopted in June. So that means it's all cuts or it's deferring things, you know, um, the governor's infrastructure initiative. You know, how much of that gets pushed back? You know, they grabbed half point on the sales tax in the last budget for transportation, not immediately to put it in a fund to start doing what everybody acknowledges Connecticut is way behind on, which is rebuilding its bridges and highways and railroads. Uh, And they also set aside a half percent of the sales tax to put it into a fund that will eventually, not immediately, but eventually provide some property tax release, relief. And a piece of that is something in the cities people are all excited about is, is trying to have their car taxes brought down to a reasonable level. He said um, that, you know, everything's on the table except, of course, tax increases and furlough days and maybe some other things. But, you know, he he said that this is going to be a broad-ranging discussion really about the size and scope of state government, what we can afford, what programs we need and what programs we can't. That's a pretty ambitious goal. Yeah. It's an ambitious goal and certainly to do under duress. I mean, this is the other thing is if we actually have to solve a problem right now, it might not be the best time to do all that. But it's, the only, again, it's the only time you do. When do is it, it going to happen? It's the only when time. Is it's, it when, it's when the gun is to your head. That's when you do it. Um, the question is, will there be the political will to to I mean, if you're really going to go at what is sustainable you're talking about some painful things. You're talking about telling families of disabled kids, you know what, you got to plan differently for the long run because we're not sure the state of Connecticut is going to help you the way it does today. That's tough stuff. Colin? I'm not sure I would call this an ambitious goal. I mean, it's, it, first of all, I don't even know what the goal is exactly other than to be willing to talk about everything, including things that might be highly unappetizing. And as both um, Daniela and Paz are pointing out, I mean, it, it's a situation, you know, bad cases make bad law. Well, 
bad crises make bad budget decisions, right? This is, in fact, the wrong. I mean, I agree that the only time they do this is when the gun is to their head, but it's really the wrong time to do it, right? You're going to you're going to make more desperate decisions that are going to have long range consequences because you didn't think about this more systemically early on. And and I mean, the other thing about Malloy right now is. I mean, obviously, the problem with being king of the forest is when you run out of nuts and berries, everybody gets mad at you. Uh, and so he doesn't want to do that anymore. And so, I mean, we've heard this at the national level that, you know, the Republicans are going to hug the president or the president's going to hug this. Everybody's always hugging somebody else. And what that means is I'm drowning. <laughs> and, I, and you're either going to help me keep my head bobbing above the water. I will drag you down with me. Those are the two choices. That's what the hug's all about? So, yeah. So that's what – why. and Malloy, of course, his nickname is the porcupine. Nobody wants to hug a porcupine. But that's what he wants to do right now is say, you know what? We're all in this together. I'm not owning this thing. You know, we're all owning this thing. And and so, yes, we'd love to have everybody at the table because, you know, when it all kind of starts spattering around the room, everybody's going to get spattered pretty much the same way, not just me this time. But when he said we're all in it together, he said it less like a congregational minister than, uh, you know, a fairly angry guy. He said, I'm going to call their bluff, you know, and, you know, you, you could hear the frustration he said, fine, they're on the outside sniping at me. Come on in. Show me what you got. And, and so that's the underlying vibe to how these talks began. It, you know, not, not, not the greatest way to start a negotiation. But what are the real levers here? You already said, Daniela, that everything's on the table except furloughs, except uh, tax increases. Let's just go to the tax increases. If tax increases are off the table – Ooh, where do we go? I mean, what what exactly do we do? Because that's a big, <laughs> that's it's a big, big lever. <laughs> yeah, it's a big thing to take yeah, off the right? table. I mean, that that you know, that's like cutting the legs off. I don't know. I don't know where you go. But you know, also as Paz pointed out, politically, how can you how can you go there again after what's happened? You know, what happened at the end of the session you, last year? You look year? at the big drivers. You look at pensions. You look at retiree health costs. You try to you know you try to go back and what can you do there? Either by making actual changes or by somehow. Uh, deferring some of the obligations, you know, but you know, in in defense of of the governor and this legislature, part of the problem is twenty years mm-hmm. of of ignoring um, the unfunded pension liability. Connecticut, its annual re- required contribution to the pension fund. Now, keep in mind, it's a twenty billion dollar budget. They have to pay $1.5 billion into the pension fund. $1.2 billion of that is to take care of debt, to take care of what past legislatures and past governors didn't do. Um, so that, you know, that is this huge drag on the state budget. If you, could, you, know, if you weren't on the hook for $1.2 billion, guess what? They'd be rolling in it. Colin? No, he's he's absolutely right about that. Um, uh, you know that this has been a sort of a constant refrain for Dan Malloy pretty much since he got in office that he inherited a lot of problems that were not of his making. He's absolutely right about this one and he's also willing to do something about it, prepared to do something about it in a way that his predecessors haven't been. So he gets a brownie point for that. But that doesn't really change this picture very much. The way that the picture looks right now is that some fairly ferocious things – and one of the things that's a little bit alarming is that if you if you could think of something that you would f- regard as a draconian cut, 
you know, or, or even a draconian change in the way of doing things. Whatever it is that you're thinking of will only bite off part of the problem. I mean, there isn't there isn't something sweeping that would really amount to a a, a complete fix or anything resembling a complete fix. It's not just one hard choice. It's going to be a series of fairly unpleasant choices. I, I just want to quickly go to the phones here. Melanie's calling from Waterbury. Hi, Melanie. Hi. Hi. What's on your mind? Um, I just wanted to say that I know there's no, you know, easy answer to all of this, but I work for a nonprofit agency, and one of the cuts that's big to us that just happened is closing one of our group homes. And so we have four boys aged between... 13 and 16, who have been significantly traumatized. They're almost impossible to place in foster homes that are now going to have the, another trauma of their home for the past two to three years being uprooted, having to live with strangers again, having to start treatment all over. And I know it's just four individuals in the large scope of things, but it's there's no face to any of this, it seems. Mm. M- Melanie, thank you, by the way, for sharing that story with us, and uh, I-, I do appreciate your phone call. Paz? It's not four individuals. It's it's many individuals, and there are a lot of stories out there like that. You know, every parent of of a kid with an intellectual disability who is, you know, aged out, uh, you know, of, of the school system, they're terrified because the level of support for, you know, the day programs, you know, to socialize these young adults and also, quite frankly, to give their parents a little, you know, respite from their care. You know, this is scary stuff. Mm. Daniel? Yeah, it's it's heartbreaking. I mean, they come to the Capitol, and some of these um, parents are getting older, and and their their fears for for their kids. I mean, it's it it really is. It, it, there is a face, and that is the face, and it's it's really really hard. But before we we take a break, Colin, and one of the things that that you'd mentioned to us leading into this is, and I know Paz had talked to earlier about how the handling of the budget crisis uh, hasn't exactly gone well in the polls for for Governor Malloy. You know, when Quinnipiac polled on this stuff, it, it really was true. People are have a lot of discontent, not just for the governor, frankly, but just for the way the state is handling all of this stuff. Yeah. So uh, Mark's uh, colleague, Keith Thanoff, has a piece basically saying that one of the things that might be on the table, oddly enough, is a tax cut. You wouldn't really think we could be talking about a tax cut after everything you just heard Paz and Daniela say. But somehow or other, we would be thinking about some kind of business uh, tax cut. Now, the reason for that, obviously, is that part of this climate, this uh, horrible weather system uh, that's raining all over Dan Malloy, involves this perception that this is a very bad place to do business. And so, yes, uh, in the Q poll two weeks ago, 72 percent of all voters disapproved of Malloy's handling of the budget. uh, And half said they were very concerned at the prospect of General Electric moving its headquarters out of state in reaction to the state's tax policies and unsettled fiscal climate. I'm reading Keith's story. But um, so, you know, this is sort of the ultimate triumph, right, of of General Electric and the business sector in general. And first of all, allow me to say, and from the bottom of my heart, and I mean it this time, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. I mean, Bernie Sanders is right. You know, and you know, I mean, we now know as a result of of another report that came out within the last two weeks that General Electric pays a negative state and federal tax rate nationally. So in terms of the taxes imposed by them by any arm of any U.S. government, they're essentially entitled to a refund. They pay like an 18 percent international tax rate, but even that's low. So they have managed to convince people 
people who are in desperate need of tax relief, especially property tax relief, which would really help everybody, they have somehow managed to, to, to convince the beleaguered middle class that they need help, they, GE, need help more than the average person does, and, and when more in than fact the, they pay yeah. negative taxes. Well, yeah, that's and, and more than the kids in the group home, but not, anyway. Not yeah. quite true because they do pay $2 million in property taxes every year oh, to yeah. Connecticut Town, and their employees certainly pay pay taxes. Yes. So. I mean, I, I totally buy the argument from everybody that, you know, that their employees are subject to Connecticut's tax burdens. But that's not really what – that's not how people who are answering these Q poll questions are really processing this. GE has been disingenuous throughout this whole process. They've refused to come out and clearly say this is the single tax that is causing us to look elsewhere. And everybody assumes – it's the carry forward stuff because they're spinning off GE Capital, so they want to spread out the tax liability on on you know that capital gain, as it were, over many many years. This is what everybody assumes they're furious about. Um, and by the way, the relief that you know Keith referred to, it's I think it's going to be more token. Um, you know, it's not going to be uh, – it's not going to make that go away. And gee, you know, they're looking at New York. Well, New York's tax structure is more onerous in most ways than Connecticut. So the assumption is what they're really talking about doing and going to New York is cutting a separate deal, playing the old game, which by the way, they played many years ago when they came to Connecticut from New York. You know, we see the border jumping, the the Westchester to Fairfield County two-step all the time. So for them to go to New York, which they're <laughs> threatening to do, they're gonna need a special deal saying, mm-hmm. hey, you don't you don't have to pay any of this stuff for, you know, ten years. It it I want to just sort of say that I would agree with Daniela. And if what, if what GE had said, if GE had taken a leadership role in the state and said, you know what, property taxes are too high in this state. It's a burden on our employees. It's a burden on everybody. Every, this, this state doesn't function well financially and fiscally because property taxes are too high and everybody ought to get some property tax relief. I think that would be a tremendous message. And I agree completely with that message. Not that there's any tax relief to be given or found anywhere at this moment, but if there were, uh, that would be great. It's not really what I hear them saying, though. I hear them basically whining and sending this message that, you know, as Paz is suggesting, you don't cut special deals for us, we're out of here. It, 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 would be, it would be actually a great public service, as a matter of fact, to have an enormous employer say that our property tax system is broken because Lord knows it does need to be fixed. Paz, quickly. Uh, $2 million for GE. Come on. That's, that's rounding error, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's meter reading. Uh, Mark yeah. Pazniokas from the Connecticut Mirror. Daniela Altamari, the State House reporter for the Hartford Current. Colin McEnroe, the host of the Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. When we come back, we're going to talk about more interesting stuff at the state capitol. This one actually has to do with the Democrats who run the state and also the state Democratic Party somehow in court versus one another. This is interesting. We'll talk about this next, where we live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. It's Wednesday, so it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. Joining us is Daniela Altamari. She's State House reporter for The Hartford Current. Mark Pazniokas is here. He's bureau chief for the Connecticut Mirror at the Capitol. And our own Colin McEnroe, who hosts The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. He's got a show in the afternoon at 1 o'clock. And what's happening today on the show, Colin? Well, I've always been kind of interested in traditional Chinese medicine, and but I also knew that it lay outside the Western scientific canon. Except this year, the Nobel Prize went to a 
highly specific subset of Chinese medicine. So we're doing a show about Chinese medicine. There's a specific practitioner here in the area, a man who trained extensively in China who will be joining us, plus patients and scientists and I don't know, people who can give us an overview. That should be very interesting. Uh, coming up to this afternoon on the Colin McEnroe Show here on WNPR. So switching from what's happening at the state capitol with the state budget to this story, which we've been following along the way, but we really want to dig into today. Uh, state Democrats, the State Democratic Party, are challenging the uh, State Election Enforcement Commission's authority to investigate whether the Democratic Party illegally supported Governor Malloy's re-election bid. It has to do with a mailer at the end of that campaign. And there's an awful lot to talk about here, Paz, but could you set this up a little bit more than I'm able to in a sentence or two? Okay, let's, let's do the real quick primer here. You have different pools of campaign money with different rules. Um, very simply, Dan Malloy, as a publicly financed candidate, uh, had to abide by certain rules. A limit, maximum contributions of $100, $100 tight spending limits, and and he could not accept money from state contractors. State contractors cannot give to any state campaigns. All right? Very simple. We have tight rules. And these tight rules are, again, uh, heralded across the nation in the wake of the Roland scandal. Jody Rell put a lot of these things into place. So there are certain campaign finance rules in Connecticut that have been held up to a certain standard. Connecticut has some of the tightest campaign finance rules. In, or Well, it did. I mean, we, but we can get into that. <laughs> we can get into that later. All right. Now, you have a conflict with federal rules. Now, the irony here is the conflict is caused by the assumption in Congress that the states are the Wild West. They have really porous rules. So Congress passed a law in 2002. Chris Shays was one of the co-sponsors. I remember him. And it was the, the, one, of the, you know, one of the names of the, of the law they passed was the shays Meehan bill. Now, that basically said we're going to stop soft money from seeping into federal races. Soft money is – think of it as indirect contributions. You know, you don't give it to the candidate. You give it elsewhere and it kind of makes its way uh, into the, into the uh, political ecosystem. So what the feds did was they said, all right, pretty much all spending on get out the vote stuff, everything that can help a federal candidate – um, in a federal election year, you got to report it under federal rules. OK, that sounds simple enough. But the problem is the federal law does not bar state contractor contributions. So the practical result is pretty much the overhead expenses, all the get out the vote stuff in an even numbered year – um, which are all federal election years, but those are also all statewide campaign years. Of course. So you got to play under the uh, you got to you got to use the federal account. At the, all the parties they have a state account, a federal account. So the federal money, you get all the state contractor money that flows into it. These contractors are barred from directly supporting Governor Malloy or anybody else running for state office. But yet, this money backflows into the race indirectly um, or in some cases not so indirectly because the state parties can make unlimited expenditures in support of their legislative and statewide candidates. So the issue this year was amazingly enough in this era of multi-million dollar negative TV campaigns – a mailer of all things is what is the root cause 
of the Democratic Party's problem. The, they, they did what, you know, you tell your kids never to do. You know, you can either ask for permission or, or don't ask for permission and later ask for forgiveness. They asked for permission. Can we, can we use federal money on this mailer that has Dan Malloy's picture? And then before they got an answer, they said, uh, never mind. They did the mailing anyway. The Republicans complained, and here we are. Now, one of the consequences of this is the Democratic Party is saying, hey, folks, federal law preempts. And what they're saying is you basically have no ability to investigate this, to issue these subpoenas. So the conflict we now have in court is the Democratic Party is basically arguing that many of these state reforms – are unenforceable. If somebody wants to ignore them, hey, sorry, the State Elections Enforcement Commission is preempted by federal law. So that's sort of the scene setter for where we are. And one of the fun things about this then, Daniela, is it essentially puts uh, State Attorney General George Jepson, who used to run the State Democratic Party, in a position where he's saying, as a representative of the state of Connecticut, um, this whole deal that the Democrats have going, this is completely baseless. This this doesn't make any sense. So here's the Democrats who run the state versus the Democrats who run the state. Do I have this right? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of a crazy house of mirrors to continue your, your carnival uh, analogy. <laughs> um, but what the Democrats have done is they've used the system to build an amazing organization. I mean, you know, they have really um, – you know, leveraged uh, the money and and built an incredible get out the vote organization. We saw that in the in the governor's race, close race. Um, probably put Malloy over the top. I mean, they've they've been really really skilled at this, and we'll see if it'll. Well, well since you wanted to continue my carnival analogy, I'm now going to turn it over to Colin McEnroe, who will breathe fire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so where to begin? Actually, um, so let's. Just think about what people really do care about here. Um, our friend Mike Pesca from The Gist, uh, the podcaster, he was at this thing called Politicon, which is like sort of Comic-Con for politics and start the carnival music up again, I guess. But, you know, so – and he just walked around with a microphone asking people like James Carville and Clay Aiken and Daily Show correspondent, whoever he could find, uh, you know, if you could snap your fingers to make one change, what would you do? And everybody said, I'd get money out of politics. I'd change – I would change the Citizens United ruling. I, I, you know, all those kinds of things. And yeah, so people do look to our state, and I know, and everybody agrees that that's true. Everybody, like with half a brain, agrees that that's true. And everybody has these man crushes now on Lawrence Lessig, who's the guy who's going to driving this forward. <laughs> um, and they look at our state, and, and because we did do these things, but then let's we did put through a citizens' election program, a publicly financed elections program. And that's often what people cite when they're answering questions like Pesco's question. Yeah, there should be something like that. So let's quickly go through what's happened since then. First, they overhauled the, the state finance laws. In other words, once Malloy got in power, he sent somebody, parentheses, Luke Bronin, his, his counsel, to rework these, these campaign finance laws to enlarge ways in which money could be injected into the system through the state party and in other ways, raise minimums uh, higher, that kind of thing. So that was step one. Then last time around, and Paz did a lot of reporting on this, last time around in, in 2014, they ran a campaign that was full of dark money on both sides. So about $9 million on each side for Malloy uh, and Foley. Dark money, in other words, money that just sort of isn't regulated, isn't covered by anything, is basically freed up by Citizens United to come in from outside sources and is not regulatable by any kind of system that we could ever set up. But that wasn't enough. It wasn't enough to rewrite all the laws – 
and then get $9 million in dark money. They had to game this little thing that Paz is talking about. They had to game this whole question. It was like the last thin blue line that was standing to keep state contractor money out of gubernatorial campaigns. They, it wasn't enough to do all these other things. They had to do this one other thing. And it really speaks to the absolute addiction that the state Democratic Party and all political parties really, but here in Connecticut, the state Democratic Party has to money. They are addicted to money. Now, interestingly, yes, as uh, you and Dad Yellow were pointing out, George Jepson is the point man on this case. Who's, his office is effectively arguing that what the state Democratic Party is doing is obscene, uh, that they're making the argument that, that nobody has jurisdiction over them, that they can essentially do whatever they want. Uh, no state agency can stop them. It's like trying to negotiate with General Zod or something. Paradoxically, last night at the house of George Jepson was a fundraiser for, get ready, Luke Bronin, who's, of course, I mean, he's essentially already the mayor of Hartford. He needs a fundraiser the way I need more gray in my beard. Um, he's a Death Star running against a couple of Ewoks uh, at this point. So, like, why are they having a fundraiser? A big fundraiser, I might add, judging from the amount of cars on the street. Because they can. Because they can inject more private money into the public system. They don't need a reason. They don't need the money and they don't need a reason to want more money. They just want it. Give us some more money. And I do think that there's a through line to this show. I'll stop in just a second. No, no, no. This is There's good. a through line to the show. Which is like Dan Malloy – I mean this is a point where Dan Malloy could conceivably say – not in my name. Don't do this anymore. You know, because really at this point, it's like he got elected through this citizens' elections program in 2010. He got elected through public financing, and now it's like he's Jackie Robinson making rules so how black people can't come into baseball anymore. I mean, it, it's he really should be saying this is wrong. We went too far. They went too far. Whatever pronoun you want to use, they went too far on this. It's got to stop. The you know we're, we're really making a mockery of the very system that elected me in the first place. You're never going to hear him say that, obviously. But, I mean, you really do kind of I, – I, you know, it would be nice to hear a little leadership out of him on this one. And, and Colin actually undersold what the 2010 race was. Dan Malloy was the first publicly financed candidate for governor and he beat big money in the Democratic primary. He was badly outspent by Ned Lamont, who was self-funded. And then in the general election, he beat another self-funder, Tom Foley. Tom Foley was publicly financed this most recent election, but in 2010, he was not. So Dan Malloy, in many ways, was the poster child for how you can succeed on public financing, that you get to a, a general election and a primary grant that is big enough to reach all the voters in Connecticut, but it is not so over the top like we saw in 2014 with all the independent expenditures that came in. So Malloy has gone in four years from being really the poster child for public financing and campaign finance reform to being a guy who is running the risk of leaving a legacy of undoing all that. If his – if his, it's the Democratic Party's lawyer, but Malloy is the titular head. If, if their lawyer succeeds, 
you could be left really with no enforcement mechanism in Connecticut. Um, and that that is really the position that the attorney general's office took in its legal papers. And, and they are they are I think they are playing hardball. They have a career assistant attorney general whose expertise is this area. And she is putting up a strenuous defense of the state elections enforcement commission. But it, it took this it took John Rowland going to jail and his uh, closeness with contractors and the way he spent money while in office, Daniela, to get us these laws which were heralded and then dismantled. It seems unlikely now, post-Citizens United, and with the, you know, the specter of more money coming in from Republicans uh, on the other side, that the Democrats who control the state legislature, they control all the uh, statewide offices, that they would ever do anything to set us back on a course toward changing some of these laws back. I mean, do we ever see a time at which our state legislature takes a serious look at this again and says, this really is, getting back to Colin's first point, out of control. We got to do something. No, because if you look at their rhetoric, I mean, how many breathless emails have you guys received this week from the state Democratic Party about the Koch brothers? And, <laughs> a you know, thousand. Yeah, yeah probably more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, their their line is they've you know, they are on the defense. They are playing defense um, and they've got to stop. You know, they are the sole, you know, defender of um of the people in the face of big money and dark money and Citizens United and all these awful things. So, it, you know, their rhetoric is is completely kind of out of line with, with the reality on the ground here. Everybody view – not everybody, but many people in public office, they view the system in terms of how it affects them. And you take a look at the Senate Democratic majority in Connecticut. There used to be a limit on what the state party could spend in support of legislative candidates. Well, in 2012, there was some outside money came in, big money came in to attack some Democrats, and it really alarmed the Democrats. They said, whoa, this is the future. So we have to defend against this. So what did they do? They lifted what had been a $10,000 limit, I, I think it was, on what the state party could funnel into a legislative race. Now it's unlimited. So what's the consequence of that? You have a situation like in the in the uh, the case of uh, Ted Kennedy Jr. You know, Ted's family can only give $100 directly to his campaign. But his friends, his family can write $10,000 checks to the state party. The state party can turn around and funnel the money back to Ted's campaign. That is exactly what happened this time. Now, that's also subject of a complaint before the Elections Enforcement Commission, but I believe what Kennedy did was absolutely legal. It just shows a weakness in the system. So what is the point of the $100 limit, contribution limit, if your wife, your best friend can send $10,000 checks to the state party and it bounces back to your campaign immediately? Colin? I, I totally agree with the, what he just said. Um, I, the one thing that I would say is that I think that although he got elected, uh, I think that was a little bit damaging to Ted Kennedy and I think it was kind of embarrassing. And one of the and because the numbers are smaller there, the overall numbers are smaller, you really look at that number and think, wow, was it worth it? You know, considering the fact you sort of got caught, you know, and people pointed their fingers at it and it was in the press, is it really worth it? And that might be one of our salvations is that sometimes they can be shamed 
out of doing this kind of thing. But I think it's much more difficult to do at this much larger level. I think what's important to understand, particularly if you're sitting at home getting these emails, is, you know what? If you want to give money to the state Democratic Party to fight the Koch brothers or whatever, fine. If they want to ask you for money for that, fine. But we're really talking about something else here. We're talking about – we're not talking about fighting the Koch brothers. What this case is about is, as, as has been already sketched out here, it's about them using federally regulated do- dollars to go into a state race to do something they're specifically not allowed allowed to do in Connecticut and, and, and to circumvent a law that was meant to keep state contractors. If the state contractors want to go fight the Koch brothers, I think that's fine. you know. But that's not what happened here. The state contractors' money, they looked for an aperture to get that money into, the, into a state race where it didn't belong. And they know better. They know better than to do this. And the only reason they did it is that they're addicted to money. And now they're arguing. And they have the best lawyer in the state of Connecticut, David Golub, making this argument, which Scares me. Now they're arguing that effectively there's no jurisdiction over them. That there's that whoever's wearing the sheriff's badge has no right well, to, to to stop them. Well, what if this best lawyer uh, for the Democrats? What if he loses? What happens, Paz, if the Democrats lose lose in this battle? Well, the immediate thing that would happen is the subpoenas that State Election Enforcement Commission issued to the Democratic Party would be enforced. So there's a whole bunch of emails. They're they're really they've really asked for everything. They want to see. You know how solicitations were made. They want to look at bank records. So there's that. Now, if ultimately, if the, if the commission determines that the law was broken, they theoretically have the ability to claw back the entire six point five million dollar general election grant that was given to the campaign of Dan Malloy, and they could also do fines. But but the fines would be insignificant co- compared to. The idea that you'd have to refund six and a half million dollars that would that would pretty much bankrupt the party for well at least a year or so <laughs> but, but I, I we just, just wonder, get more emails but the, the I, I want to reinforce what is it you know what is allowable now under this weird thing where you can you can write checks to the federal account what it means is an engineering company that is competing for a multi-million dollar contract at the state DOT can send tens of thousands of dollars to the Democratic Party right before the DOT makes that award. Now, I am not suggesting that anybody at the DOT is doing anything corrupt. You know, they have their review process, but it sure – it doesn't do much to engender public confidence. And, and it's exactly the reason why contractor money would ever be thought to be illegal in campaigns like this. But – there you have it. Let's just let this sit there for a moment with our listeners as we take a break. And we're going to come back and we're going to talk more about something well fascinating. What's happening in Bridgeport right now? We're about a week away from maybe Joe Gannon being back in the mayor's office. It actually has some implications across the state with, once again, Democrats as they try to do a little soft chew around whether or not to say Joe should be mayor or not. Uh, Colin McEnroe is here along with Mark Pazniokas of The Mirror, Daniela Altamari of The Hartford Current. We're in the wheelhouse where we live.
This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up on tomorrow's show, Senator Chris Murphy is making another push for mental health reform in Congress. He hopes we'll overhaul and strengthen the mental health system. He'll join us from Washington to talk about that and also U.S. policy on use of drones. We'll also talk to Senator Richard Blumenthal about an Obama Obama administration proposal to help address Puerto Rico's uh, fiscal challenges. And our own Jeff Cohen updates us on what's going on with Hartford City Treasurer Adam Cloud and the Back Nine Network. Those are a few stories we'll tackle tomorrow here on Where We Live. Today, it's The Wheelhouse, our weekly news roundtable. We're joined by Daniela Altamari, State House reporter for the Hartford Current, Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror, and Colin McEnroe, the host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Well, we spent a lot of time on the program the last couple of weeks talking about Joe Gannam and his unlikely potential reemergence as the mayor of the city of Bridgeport. One of the things, before we get into some of the sort of inside Bridgeport stories here, and some of them are fascinating, Colin, is just really about how state Democrats are reacting. Governor Malloy, I asked him about this. Uh, he's talked about this a little bit with the press. He's essentially saying that Joe Gannam doesn't deserve to be the city's Democratic nominee, but he's not exactly coming out in favor of Mary Jane Foster, who's running against him. Should Malloy, should any other top state Democrats uh, who are concerned about the specter of a Joe Gannam administration actually be saying something about, like, you know, vote for the other woman? Well, this is, first of all, this is always a question. Um, and it's, uh, the question's, amp- I mean, it's always a question about how much should people who don't live in Bridgeport or any other place, whether they're Congress people or or governors or whatever, how much should they meddle? How much should they endorse? That's always a legitimate question, and it's amplified by the fact that Malloy is horrendously unpopular right now. So, how much help could he really be to Foster? But so there's that question as well. But it does seem as though what you have here is kind of an emergency. Yeah, I mean, you have an emergency in the sense that Joe Gannam, who seems to be a horrifically inappropriate person to uh, for a restoration to the office of mayor, seems to perched on the edge of this. Balance, so uh, there would be sort of a moral imperative maybe to say something about this. Balanced against that is the unlikelihood of it mattering. In other words, I don't know. I talked to some Ganem, uh, some uh, former Finch supporters who were trying to figure out you know, how to help Foster win and they say all these very optimistic things. But the truth is it's really sort of hard to see how Ganem doesn't win. So this is, there's this very uncertain terrain. I mean if you're Dan Malloy, if you're Jim Himes, if you're anybody – you know, what's the point of going in there and stumping and you could go door knocking for uh, Mary Jane Foster. She's still probably going to lose. And then you're going to have this vengeful, <laughs> vengeful, irritated Ganem, mad as a wet hen and sitting on the throne again. So, you know, what's the upside? I, I guess? Uh, p- perhaps what's the upside. But again, if, if there is something to be said about clean government to Daniela about the fact that we want our cities to be run very well, that if we're going to send millions and billions of dollars from Hartford, the state capital, to cities like Bridgeport, maybe we want to make sure we've got somebody running the city who doesn't have a record of not you know, taking care of the money so much. I mean, is it something that state Democrats should be saying something about? Maybe. I, I, I'm, I was just trying to think, are there any races where, where the governor has uh, injected himself? Any other races? Well, Tony, uh, Harp, the Tony Harp, this, that last cycle is the... Well, yeah, last time, right? But, I mean, th- this this current, you know, election cycle, I, I can't think of any. Paz may, may he know. Endor- he endorsed Bill Finch in Bridgeport. Well, yeah, I- exactly. But no, he stayed, he stayed out of the Hartford race, even yep. though Luke Bronin is his friend. Um, he, you know, he... He viewed that as, look, we have a Democratic incumbent. I'm not going to stomp on him. You know? yeah. And so – but this is – as Colin said, I mean this is a little different. There is there is this sort of moral question. Um, it's fraught with all kinds of problems. Bridgeport is the state's largest city. Bridgeport is the source of 
you know, Bridgeport and New Haven are, are the two sources of Democratic votes in in statewide elections. Hugely important. They were hugely important to the election and re-election of Dan Malloy. Um, Bridgeport will be important to the re-election of Congressman Jim Himes. So, you know, Himes, by the way, uh, it was reported down in Bridgeport that he stopped by the re-election headquarters, the election headquarters of Joe Gannum, although he did not endorse. So even there, you see Jim Himes doing mm-hmm. this little dance. Hey, I'm going to come in and and uh, say hi, but it's a non-endorsement. And, and Foster's people seize on that and say, look, he, he can't bring himself to say the words. And the governor the other day made his strongest remarks yet. Um, it was a pretty pointed disavowal of Joe Gannon, but you're right. He he would not take the next step and endorse Mary Jane but, Foster. But does it, I mean, reading the coverage over the weekend, there were a couple of great stories. Um, Chris Keating, my colleague, had one, and Sue Hague at the AP both had some really good stories of, you know, being down on the ground in Bridgeport. Do you think the average person in Bridgeport, can, no. oh, Dan Malloy, you know, endorsed Mary Jane. That's going to change my vote. What, what, what those stories tell me, two, two different things. One is it doesn't matter if Dan Malloy comes. The other one is it doesn't matter anywhere near as much as you people think that Joe Gannon ever went to jail. It, it doesn't didn't seem to matter at all. I mean, you know, second chance society, right? It's, well, and that's we sort of joked about that column, but it's actually this has a real resonance here. Dan Malloy is on this push for a second chance society, which I think many of us and we've said on this program makes an awful lot of sense. And in a lot of ways, if you talk to people on the ground in Bridgeport, as Daniela just said, that's what you're hearing. You're hearing echoes of the second chance society at work. Yeah, or maybe what you're hearing is um, echoes of the wellsprings from which the second chance initiative springs, which. Uh, is hyper-incarceration, right? I mean, there's way too many people in prison. Well, and so pr- there's a preponderance, a much higher proportion of people from cities who are in prison, people of color from cities who are in prison. So pretty soon, I, I still think the best political pundit on this race so far has been Ernie Newton, uh, who should <laughs> who should know from from prison. But, you know, who said, look, you, you can't, Finch or Foster or anybody, but Finch can't go into these urban neighborhoods where, in fact, every family is touched somehow by hyper-incarceration and say, don't vote vote for that guy, he was in prison. Because, you know, Uncle Marty was in prison, too. I mean, it just it doesn't have the kind of resonance. Which, of course, is complete crap. The connection between their lives and the life of Joe Gannum, and, who grew up in an upper-middle-class family, all the opportunities, you know, he was not driven by desperation. You know, it's it, so that's the thing that gets conflated here, which, of course, is crazy. Yeah, it's easy in a black neighborhood not to be uh, all uptight about somebody who screwed up when they were 22 years old, so, you know, sold some some rock on the street, whatever. Joe was a lawyer. <laughs> Joe was the, f- the son of a, of a prominent uh, man in Bridgeport. These folks had money, and he came up with a scheme to siphon off, Fed say, $500,000. You know, he would get a cut of all the action in Bridgeport. So that's what kind of makes people crazy about comparing that with somebody, you know, on the on the east end of Bridgeport. Um, and, and by the way, you know, I the story Chris did this weekend, you know, I had the similar experience. I did that a month ago. I went door to door with Ganim in in the east end and he was treated like a celebrity. I mean, people, it was, I have never seen anybody so uniformly welcomed by voters. 
you know, you're right. They do not care about that conviction. Well, okay. Speaking about things that people maybe don't care about, we're just going to turn back to the city of Hartford quickly, Colin. Three minutes left here. And I know you wanted to bring up, look, there's been all this fallout from, first we talked about the Yardgoats baseball stadium for months and months and months. And now the fallout from this Dillon Stadium project uh, that has cost the city development director his job. Yeah, and I mean, I won't even need the three minutes because nobody really can quite understand exactly what's happening here. I mean, it really, you know, if you give me 30 minutes, I wouldn't be able to explain it either. There actually sort of are two soccer teams in a way hanging in the balance, and there's an indoor team and an outdoor team, and they are sort of affected. They're quantum entangled. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I mean, the big development since the last time we had a wheelhouse was that we now know there is a federal investigation into this. Uh, they are beginning to subpoena records. And, and so uh, most of the questions seem to have to do with where money went. Money money was either allocated by one private party to another private party for certain kinds of payments or allocated to the city for certain kinds of payments. There's money that's essentially missing, maybe quite a lot of it. Uh, and the other thing that happened that did happen before last week's wheelhouse was that the city development director, Thomas Deller, abruptly resigned. Abruptly resigned in the way that if you're kind of familiar with the general Kremlinology of American life, you, you sort of knew right away there was some kind of really large problem here. <laughs> the next I, thing I, will happen, yes. Right. I don't really know that it's necessarily sitting right at his feet, um, but uh, there's a lot of unaccounted for money. Uh, and uh, I, I would guess that, you know, careers will be wrecked by this. Uh, careers will be wrecked by this. And something that our uh, our own Jeff Cohn is, is really trying to figure out, which is the real key uh, issue here, Colin, is are they actually still playing indoor soccer in Hartford? We don't even <laughs> We don't even know if there's still a team. There's a couple of guys who not, I think, really do kind of own the team, uh, and, and I think they're trying to sell it. But the problem is that the, scene, the team is all tangled up with this premier sports company, so it's going to be difficult to sell it. Uh, a bad sign, their merchandise is for sale at 50% off, and I think it says, like, Closeout or something. <laughs> so, you know, if you could buy the T-shirt on Closeout, that's a, they're scheduled to play, I think, November 8th maybe is their first game. Early November, first game, XL Center. Uh, I doubt they'll be in uniform. There's <laughs> some close-out uniforms. Colin McEnroe, host of The Colin McEnroe Show on WNPR. Thank you, Colin. Thank you. Thanks to Mark Pazniokas, Capitol Bureau Chief for the Connecticut Mirror. Thank you, Paz. Thanks for having me. And Daniela Altamari, State House reporter for the Hartford Current. Thank you, Daniela. Thanks. Thanks also to the good folks at CTN, the Connecticut Network, who were there with their cameras today. Uh, Lydia Brown produced today's show. Thanks to Tucker Ives, Betsy Kaplan, Josh Nalea, Kyle Wolf, our technical producer, Heather Brandon, our digital editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. I'm John Dankowski, and this is Where We Live. <laughs>